The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. Preaching, I was preaching at another church, but it's good to be back. And I'm excited to be sharing the word this morning and continuing our series um, on come and adore Jesus as we kind of head to Christmas and we reflect on these twin themes of worship and what it means to really worship Jesus and understand some of the titles and, and kind of roles that Jesus is described as having so that we worship him with, in spirit but in truth with understanding of who Jesus is. And that kind of fits into the bigger theme for our year which is remaining in Christ um, and remaining in the vine and, and again understanding who Jesus is helps us to kind of appreciate all that he does for us and and hopefully will draw our hearts to be connected, to stay in him and to remain in him. And so this morning I want to look at this title of Jesus being the bridegroom. Jesus is our bridegroom. Now, in Western culture, we don't have a strong value for the bridegroom. Dash and I have done prepare for lots of lots of couples leading up to them, their, their wedding day. And often, it's the, it's the bride-to-be that organizes the whole wedding. And the, and the groom is quite happy to kind of sit back and go, yeah, whatever, honey, whatever you want. And even on the wedding day, it's really all about the bride. And we don't stand when the groom comes in. You know, everybody waits Okay, now we stand because the bride's about to walk in. Uh, everything, the, the entrance, the, the, the song, everything is focused on the bride. But this is, not all, this is not how it is in all cultures. I was recently at, a, at my cousin's daughter's wedding and they're Hindu. And it was at the, you know, the, the Hindu temple here in Westmead. And I noticed something quite interesting. There's a big part that's given to the groom before the bride ever enters in. The groom also enters into a whole bunch of pomp and, and ceremony and ritual. And there's, a, there's about a 20-minute uh, part in the, in the ceremony that's just about the groom. The bride's not even there. And it kind of made me think, wow, I, I think we miss something in, in, in ignoring the bridegroom. And I know that some of us, when the bride walks down the aisle, we don't look at the bride. Some of us actually peek a look at the groom, don't we? Because you see so much in the eyes of the groom in that moment when he catches the glimpse of his bride for the first time. And I've seen many a groom tear up these strong, muscular, boofy men who at the, at the side of this beautiful bride walking and just melt in that moment. And, and there's something that you, you can appreciate when you, when you kind of look at the bridegroom. And so this morning, I want us to do just that to look at the bridegroom, to look at our bridegroom and to get a glimpse of what he's like so that hopefully our hearts will be drawn to, to, to be in more in love and more infatuated, more captivated, more delighted in him. Now this theme of the bridegroom, Jesus' uh, title, is referred to several times in the New Testament. Jesus makes reference to it explicitly twice. Uh, Mark chapter 2 and several other places in the gospel where Jesus is talking about fasting. And he talks about how you know, the, the friends of the bridegroom, they're not going to fast while the bridegroom's there. But when the bridegroom's taken away, then they'll fast. 
In Matthew 25, where Jesus is talking about the parable of the, the virgins that are waiting for the coming of the bridegroom. Again, it's an explicit reference to him being the bridegroom. In John chapter 3, John the Baptist uses this idea to say, I'm the friend of the bridegroom and I'm just here to prepare uh, the way for him. But now that he's come, he must increase and I must decrease. And then in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul uses a similar reference about the Corinthian church and he says, God's called me to prepare prepare you because I have committed you to the one husband, to Jesus. And my role is to kind of prepare you, to present you to him. And then ultimately in, in Revelation chapter 19, John writes about this wedding banquet that, that is being prepared in heaven and that one day we will all be a part of this incredible wedding celebration where it is the marriage supper of the lamb and, the, and this, the, 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 the wife of the lamb has been presented and, and, is, and, and it's a celebration of this union between the lamb and his bride. And so we see this theme developed throughout the New Testament. But it's not just in the New Testament. It actually goes all the way back into the Old Testament and begins really at, at Sinai when God rescues Israel from Egypt and he brings them to himself. And, and the language that's used is, is very much marriage language where God reaches out and rescues Israel and brings her to himself and makes this covenant at Sinai. And then as this, as this divine romance unfolds the story of the Old Testament is this romance that kind of goes horribly wrong at several points where this betrothed one, the, the covenant wife is unfaithful to the divine lover. And we see Israel continually failing time and time again to live up to her part of the covenant. And yet God continually and faithfully pursuing Israel in spite of her sin and her, her idolatry, which again the Bible describes as adultery. And we see this unfaithful wife that keeps wandering away from this divine lover. And, and God the husband who remains faithful to the covenant and continues to pursue his wayward wife. And we see this in passages like Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 23, Hosea 1 to 3 is probably the, the most clearest example because God asks Hosea to actually dramatize this idea in his own personal life and marry a prostitute who wanders away. And then God says, go get her, go, go after her. And God says, that's how my heart's like for Israel. And interestingly, in Deuteronomy, Moses says to the nation of Israel, God didn't pick you because you were lovely. God didn't pick you because you were deserving. God didn't pick you because you were numerous or powerful or, or lovable. He picked you because of his love. He set his affection on you. And we see this idea of this divine romance and, and lover being played out throughout the pages of the Old Testament. Now, for a lot of Christians, it's, it's this theological idea that shapes their understanding of marriage as being a covenant relationship, an exclusive covenant relationship between a man and a woman. And we hold to that, you know, for many people, it's because of this reason, this idea of this theology of God being the husband and the groom uh, and, and God's people being the, the wife and, and, and uh, Jesus being the bridegroom and the church being the wife, it kind of carries that idea forward. And so then we come to our passage this morning in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul actually brings those two ideas together. And he says that husbands ought to love and treat their wives a particular way because Jesus as the bridegroom 
treats his wife certain ways. And so we're going to jump there. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5, we're going to have a look at just three kind of main things that Paul tells us about the bridegroom Jesus. And then look at three implications that come out of that that I think are profound and significant for us to to grab a hold of. We're going to jump into verse 25 of chapter 5, and Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, people have never hated their own bodies, but they feed and care for them just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Father, I pray that as we come around your word, that you will speak into our hearts, that you will captivate our vision with Jesus, our bridegroom, that you'll cause us by your spirit to have a a revelation deep in our hearts that draws us deeper into him, that we might live lives that reflect who we are in Christ, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing that I want you to see here that Paul brings out is that our bridegroom is committed to us. Our bridegroom is committed to us. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, what's significant, and John Stott in his commentary points this out, that Paul uses verbs here that begins in eternity past and culminates in eternity future. And everything else is on that spectrum. And what what Paul is trying to say here is that this divine romance of Jesus and the church began in eternity past. And to fully appreciate that, if we flick to chapter 1 and verse 4, Paul says this, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. The same words that Paul uses here of the church, holy and blameless. That's the culmination, but it began in eternity past. Where Jesus looks even before we were in existence. And he sees a bride that he desires and longs for. This is the ultimate arranged marriage. Jesus covenants himself and commits himself to us because of his love for us. And he decides that out of love that he was going to come and rescue us and bring us to himself. Now in many cultures, including ours, we have this idea of a pledge of love. In our culture, it's an engagement ring. The bigger the rock, the more serious the commitment. Please don't look at Dasha's rock. It's no indication of my commitment to her. But in many cultures, the the price that's paid is 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 a token of the expression of love that it's meant to convey. Now, again, we all know that people are wearing big rocks on their fingers, and yet they're not in marriage anymore. But Jesus doesn't come and give us a token of his commitment. Paul says that Jesus gives us himself. He gives us himself. And what's more, it's not just a pledge. Jesus, Paul says, Jesus loves us and he gives up, he gave himself up for her. Now that's atonement language. That's atonement language. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus is doing more than just giving his bride a pledge. He's not just giving a commitment to his bride. He's actually paying a price. 
Now, again, in many cultures, if you've come from a different culture, you would understand the, the concept of a dowry or a, a bride price. Uh, I was talking to someone that, we, again, we were doing prepare with, an African guy, and he was telling me he had to go back to his wife's family in Africa and, you know, f- buy a whole bunch of cows and a whole bunch of goats. And I'm like, well, people still do that? And he's like, yeah, and it cost me like thousands of dollars. And I'm like, wow. And, and so many cultures still do that. This, And I know for us sometimes in the West, we might find that really offensive that somebody has to pay for a woman. It's almost like, you know, women are made to feel like property and possession. And, and we kind of wrestle with some of that stuff. But it's that's what happens in many cultures. That there's this idea that there's a price that needs to be paid. And again, we see here that Jesus, our bridegroom, expresses his commitment by not just giving us his betrothed a pledge, but paying the bride price through his blood. He gives up himself for us. He makes the dowry payment. What great love, what great commitment Jesus shows here. The second thing I want you to see is that this divine romance just doesn't begin in eternity past. It continues in the present where Jesus, as our bridegroom, continues to care for us. And Paul here now reverses the logic. He he begins by saying, okay, this is what Jesus does. So husbands, you ought to do this. And then as we move through, he says, husbands, you love, love your wives like you love your own bodies. And then he talks about what that looks like. And then he says, because Jesus does the same. Husbands, verse 28, ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, people have never hated their own bodies, but they feed and care for them. Feed has this idea of nourish and sustain. And care for has this idea of cherish with tender love. Nourish, care for, just as Christ does the church. Friends, we we have a bridegroom that not just loved us in eternity past, not just comes and gives himself to us as a pledge and to pay the ransom, to redeem us as it were, the the dowry that was owed to him. And you know what's remarkable about that? Just like Israel, we, we weren't lovable. You know, the, the Bible says that we had rejected our divine lover. We'd spat in his face. We were sinful and unclean and, and evil in our rebellion. And Romans 5 brings this out, that God demonstrates his love to us while we were his enemies. And God continues, Jesus continues to show his care for us in the present by sustaining us and carrying us as the bridegroom. He continues to nourish us and, and love us and, and cherish us with tender love. The Bible tells us many, many things that Jesus continues to do. And I've just kind of listed them for you just for time's sake. He builds his church, Matthew 16. He sends the Holy Spirit to be our advocate. He gives us his peace, John 16. He equips his church, Ephesians 4. Next one. He intercedes for us. He forgives and he cleanses us. He advocates for us before the Father when we sin. And Revelation 2 and 3, he he refines and he disciplines and he purifies us, which is what Paul says that he's doing now. He's continually cleansing and refining us because he wants to present us to himself holy and blameless. Now, here's what's mind-blowing about this again. In just about every culture, who prepares the bride? The bride prepares the or the bride's family prepares them. But Jesus, our bridegroom, in our divine story, Jesus is the one that prepares the bride. 
He's the one that loves the bride. He's the one that sacrifices for the bride. He's the one that cleanses. He's the one that is making her holy. He's the one that's washing her. Uh, and that's a picture of this bridal bath that brides went uh, experienced before their wedding day. Jesus is the one that does it. He's the one that's cleansing and washing her through the word. And he's the one that will present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless, verse 27. Jesus, our bridegroom, does all of this for us. He cares continually for us, refining us, purifying us, so that he might present us to himself in all of our glory, which is really a reflection of his glory in us. The glory of Jesus shining through us as our bridegroom cares for us. Now, again, I need to confess that I, I'm not a model husband. I mean, I'm, I think I'm a pretty good husband. My wife will kind of attest to that, hopefully. But there are moments when I still fail. And there are often times when I act selfishly, when I think of myself and I don't put Dasha's needs before my own, or I kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm uncaring and insensitive. And, and often we can kind of make the same mistake of thinking that Jesus is like that sometimes. He's not perfect. He'll, he'll kind of let us down and he'll disappoint us and he won't care for us perfectly. But that's not true. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what Paul wants us to grapple with because he's saying that Jesus is the model for every other husband. We can fail, but he will never fail to care for us perfectly. The third thing that Paul brings out is that Jesus, our bridegroom, is coming again for us. In, in, this, in verse 25 and 26, he says that the reason Jesus loved us, our bridegroom loved us and gave himself for us is because there is a purpose. He says, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of the word and all of that. Why? Verse 27, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That's eternity future language. That Paul is saying that this same bridegroom who's loved us from eternity past, who is caring for us now, is on a mission and he's doing his work because he's going to present us to himself in the future eternity. And because of that, we have this assurance that our bridegroom is coming again to receive us to take us to be with him, to, to enjoy this marriage supper. What we have now is this period of engagement. What we have now is Jesus, our bridegroom, who's come and entered into this covenant and betrothed himself to us and he's preparing us and he's going to come to take us back to himself. And we see this powerfully brought out in John chapter 14 where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's just about to go to the cross and, and leave them. And, and he's talking about his imminent return. And he says to them, don't be discouraged because I'm going away. I'm going away, but I'm going to my father's house where there are many mansions and I'm going to prepare a place for you. All of that is Jewish marriage language and it picks up on Jewish marriage ideas where the bridegroom would come and he would pledge himself to his future bride and then he would go back to his father's house and, and add an extension to the father's house and prepare that place and when the extension was complete where he was now going to live with his new family then he would come back for his bride and receive his bride and the two of them would in this amazing wedding procession head back to their father's house and begin their new lives together. 
That's what all of this is pointing to. That Jesus, our bridegroom, has committed himself. He's pledged himself. He's paid the price. He's now preparing not only a place for us, but us as well. So that we would be the wife, the bride, pure and spotless without blemish. That will, he will come and receive for himself to be with him forever in his father's house. And what a grand celebration that will be. What a grand wedding feast that will be. How exciting that we have been brought into that relationship that will be consummated in glory forever and ever. And you know what's profound and and amazing about this truth? That we are invited into this wedding feast, not as guests, but as the bride. As the bride. And so Jesus has promised that he will come and receive us to himself. So what, what, what are the implications of all of this? What is all of this kind of, how does it land into our lives today? That's wonderful to know this, but what, what is the significance of all of this for us? Well, three things, just really quick. One, I want to I powerfully say to you in light of who Jesus is, that we are loved. We are loved, and this is profound. This is good news for married people. It's good news for single people. It's good news for gay people, lonely people, broken people, hurting people, rejected people. Uh, It's good news for refugees. It's good news for everybody because Jesus, he chooses us and, and he sees us and he values us and he's willing to pursue us all the way to the cross. And that ought to stir something in us about how loved we are. And see, unless we get this revelation, we will never be able to do human relationships well because we will always be looking to somebody else to meet the deepest longing of our heart, which is to be known and to be loved and to be accepted. And many of us, we wrestle with that because of shame and feelings of unworthiness and feeling like we can never win people's approval and we're driven constantly with that. And often we act out of selfishness. Even married couples, as I said before, trying to get from our spouse what we really want without actually being able to love out of fullness. I read this morning a a quote by a guy called Peter Scazzaro. And he said, true freedom only comes as we are no longer reliant on approval from others because we know how loved we are. And I want to tell you, friend, that that's a difficult journey to go on because so many of us are driven by wanting approval from other people. And that's the power of this truth. That when we understand that we are loved by our bridegroom, we are seen, we are valued, we are accepted, we are approved by him. And that will never change. It's only then that we can truly love others out of a sense of wholeness and freedom. A quote from John Piper. uh, This was really interesting. He says this, King Jesus came into the world to take a wife, not a harem. And not for sex, but to give her pleasure that makes sex taste like cardboard. He paid for her with his life. And he's now at work by his spirit and by his word, purifying and beautifying her for himself and for her joy. I want to say to you that when you get a revelation of how the bridegroom loves you, no human relationship, no amazing sexual experience will ever satisfy you like that. Because that's how God created you to be. We are loved. The second thing I want to um, c- get you to consider is that we, we are secure. 
We are secure. We're secure because our bridegroom has made a commitment. We are secure because our bridegroom cares for us. We can be secure because we know that he's coming again. See, in our culture, we don't value commitment very much these days. Uh, just look at the marriage statistics. And it's gotten so bad that Facebook now, if you're organizing an event, has a maybe option. That just shows, you know, we, we just don't want to commit. And sometimes, again, we can bring that kind of understanding into our relationship with Jesus. Where we think, okay, well, maybe Jesus is commitment. You know, it'll come and go. And, you know, it depends on what I do and how good I am. But that's not what the Bible says. And I, I love these two scripture passages that really have encouraged and spoken me this, to the, me this week as I've been wrestling with my own stuff. And it says this in John chapter 6, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. That's security. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in me shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Here's my challenge to you from that verse. You can feel insecure only on one basis. And that is on the basis that Jesus is not able to do his Father's will. That's it. If you, th if you tell yourself, I don't believe Jesus is able to do his Father's will, then you have every right to feel insecure. But if you kind of go, hang on, that's, that's impossible. Jesus perfectly does the Father's will every time. So Jesus says, well, I'm here to do my Father's will. And that is to hold you in my hand. John, John chapter 10 says this. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What, what security there is in those words. That's why Romans 8, Dash read it this morning. That's why Romans 8 provides such encouragement and comfort to even Christians who are being persecuted who are going through difficult and hardship, who are faced with incredible challenges. They have this security because nothing, not life, not death, not angels, not demons, no height, no depth, nothing can separate you, me, them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's where our security comes from. Last week, Lewis spoke about Jesus being our champion. It's one thing to know that Jesus has strong arms. It's another thing to know that he holds you in those strong arms. I remember when Ebony was little, and she still sometimes does this, when there's a storm, she kind of freaks out. And she comes running, and she just wants to be held. Now, I could be Arnold Schwarzenegger, but if I don't hold her in that place of safety, it means nothing. Jesus does that for us. He holds us in his hand. He says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. That's security. We can rest in his commitment, his care, and the truth that he's coming again. You see, our security is not based on our doing, but on his word and what he's done. Arnold Schwarzenegger said, I'll be back. And he came. But see, the problem is, death can always get in the way of Arnie coming back. But the reason we can have an eternal security is that even death couldn't keep Jesus from coming back. He's already come back. 
He's resurrected. He's conquered death. He's defeated the ultimate enemy. And so we have no reason whatsoever to doubt that he will not come back again because there's nothing standing in his way. And if you can jump up. Last implication, we're invited. We're invited. And this is so awesome. When we get to Revelation chapter 19, it, the scene is of this incredible feast, this marriage supper of the Lamb. And it says, we're invited. Like I said, not as guests, but as the bride. We're, we're invited. We're, we're, we're brought near. And, and there's no reason for any of us to, to stay separated, to stay alienated, to, to stay removed, to stay rejected. None whatsoever. Because our bridegroom has come and has paid for us the price to rescue, to redeem, to forgive us. And he invites us to be a part of this feast, to be a part of this incredible wedding celebration, to be a part of this bride that he's preparing that's cleaned and bathed and and holy and cleansed by the work of Jesus, by his blood. He invites us to be a part of this incredible day when Jesus will consummate this pledge that he's made to us. And he will take us to himself to be with him forever and enjoy him forever and to experience pleasures and delights like we've never known. That's what our heart deeply longs for. My question is, have you accepted your invitation? Have you RSVP'd? I hope you haven't said maybe. I hope you're saying yes, yes, yes. And I hope, because you've said yes, that your heart will be devoted to the bridegroom. And you'll be like the the five wise virgins that were waiting in eager expectation of the bridegroom coming. And they had their lamps, and they had oil, and they were ready, expectant, waiting. And even in the delay, they're waiting, eagerly anticipating. We'll be like the wise servants whose master goes away and is delayed and and they're waiting eagerly, anticipating his return, faithfully serving him, doing what he's called them to do in obedience and in trust, waiting, waiting for him to come. I pray that we will have hearts that are so devoted, like Jesus said, and that we're willing to give up food and fast as a symbol of the fact that our bridegroom has so captivated our heart that nothing on this earth, even as basic as food, will satisfy us like His love for us. And giving up food is just a symbol of, oh, Jesus, you're my bridegroom and you've so filled my life that even going without the very basic need of food is easy because I long for your return and my heart longs to be with you forever. Friend, if if you're yet to discover Jesus as your bridegroom, I invite you, don't, don't stand at a distance. Because Jesus has set his affection on you before the creation of the world. And his heart is for you. Not because you deserve it. Not because you're lovely. Not because you're sinless or clean or pure. No, because of his great love. And he's come and he's paid the price. And he will prepare you by his spirit to be a part of that radiant bride that he's preparing. I invite you. Surrender your life. Trust in him. Invite Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior so that you too can be a part of the bride that he's preparing. Why don't you bow your heads and take a moment to just reflect. Search your heart.
ask yourself, have I really had a revelation that I am loved? I'm loved. I know I still need to grow in this revelation. I still act out of my insecurities. I still act out of wanting people's approval. But we'll never be free to really love people unless we're first filled with the love of the bridegroom. Surrender your heart to Him. Ask Him to fill you with that revelation and fill you with His love this morning. Maybe you're really wrestling with security or insecurity. Maybe there's things going on in your life that are troubling you, that are disturbing you. And maybe you need to be reminded that Jesus has you. He's holding you in the palm of His hand. His strong arms, His champion arms are wrapped around you. Maybe you need to hear the invitation being extended to you to not stand afar off, but to draw near, to enter into an intimate relationship with your bridegroom, to enjoy him, delight in him. Thank you, Jesus.